Professor Alter. <laughs> nice to see you after all this time. Yes, it's nice to see you too. I, I remember when you were down here, it's 10 years ago, I asked you at the time if you were going to finish the whole Bible. And, uh, and you said to me, well, I'm 74. I thought, well, that's not so bad. You can do that. And you did it. Yeah, well, the story is that had I set out to translate the whole Bible, I, would have, I might have been overwhelmed by the challenge. So I was doing one book and then another book. And then maybe about five, six years ago, I looked at what I had published and it was almost two thirds of the, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. So I said to myself, hey, if I can get through the prophets, which is a, a big imposing block, I can do this. And I did. Well, I'm grateful. That's what I have to say. I've been following you since the 80s when I started reading commentary seriously. There's a quote from you where you said that your advocacy for reading the Bible as literature and considering the ties between ancient and modern narratives and their capacity, quote, to convey to us perceptions of humanity that we would not otherwise possess. It made me think of a quote from C.S. Lewis uh, in his introduction that he did to a new edition of Athanasius on the Incarnation. Mm -hmm. in which he talks about the importance of reading old books. Um, because we have blind spots. Every age has blind spots. Sure. Things we can't see because we swim in the air and the culture around us. And, um, and he said, so uh, the only way he knew to uh, do anything about those blind spots, to unblind them, would be to read either books of the future or the past. Yeah. And since... <laughs> Since the one is not available, um, he said, let's read old books. You taught at Columbia, and then after you studied at Harvard, and then, then you went to uh, Berkeley, right. which is uh, where you've been ever since. You stumbled into to biblical studies because you were writing for commentary, which was then left liberal. And you, uh, you, before you left New York, you committed to writing three or four articles a year for them. That's right. Uh, about these things uh, and about uh, a lot about the Bible, I gather. And then all of a sudden, um, then you wrote an article that everyone loved about Judah and Tamar. So you get involved in this from a literary point of view. And I have to confess, I have never read a word of Stendhal. Um, hmm. um, about so, the book, yeah. I, well, you've got me, after reading this, I'm going to have to read the whatever it is of Parma, I ordered it because I thought, well, if it's a parallel to the David story and Robert Alter thinks so, I'm going to read it. So anyway, um, you, what, so, and, and that led to two books, the art of biblical narrative and the art of biblical poetry right. which are still in print. And, and one astonished you by being still in print. You said, um, Right, it's what, like 40 years. <laughs> what do you think is going on that there's that level of interest? Okay, uh, I'm going to pick that up in two ways. Uh, first, I'll talk about my, the, my, my work on the literary aspects of the Bible that 
preceded the translation and then the translation. So I think the more obvious explanation, like when I wrote that book about biblical narrative, which turned out to be a big hit, I got a, a prominent review in the New York Times book review by Frank Kermode, the eminent British critic with whom later I collaborated and became good friends. And um, uh, I think that, that, that people, not necessarily religious people, but let me get back to the religious people in a minute. Um, they kind of knew that, that the Bible was supposed to be, uh, it's not one book, of course, but a collection of books, uh, a, a, a great works of literature. But it, it, it didn't um, sound like Homer or Virgil or Dante or, or, or James Joyce. So uh, what was great about it? And, and I think that, that my books on the narrative and the poetry provide a kind of key. Uh, and and uh, I know that, that um, people in English departments, uh, faculty, who especially those who need to teach that, that inevitable, the Bible as literature course, uh, all grab hold uh, of those two books as a guide. Now, what happened with the, the, the uh, translation was a little surprising to me. And, uh, and I think that this may be of interest to, to uh, religious viewers of this exchange. I approached it, uh, I said, this is an amazing narrative uh, composed in wonderful prose and um, uh, dazzling poetry, not, not every uh, biblical poem. I mean, there, there are some Psalms that are kind of boilerplate from a literary point of view, but, but still uh, much of the poetry is amazing. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the poetry of Job is uh, um, the, the, the greatest poetry written anywhere in the ancient world. And um, the- uh, Let's do more about that later, go on. Okay. And the the, um, uh, the love poetry, song of songs, is breathtaking, and so forth. Okay, so that is how I approach translating the Bible. Um, but it turned out, you know, in the era of emails, we get many more responses from readers that they need. But over the years, beginning with those separate volumes that I, I was publishing. I've gotten many, many emails, and the majority of them come from religious people, all, all stripes of religion. That, that is, uh, I got one from a, an Episcopalian nun who I didn't even realize the Episcopalian nun, who, who, who said that- The dying uh, breed, I think, but they're out there anyway. Yeah, that my translation of uh, Psalms that had uh, uh, changed her spiritual practice. Uh, and uh, I, I got um, uh, emails from Presbyterian uh, um, uh, organists, from uh, 
Baptist preachers uh, who said they would use my translation in their sermons and so on and so forth. So what's, go oh, I must cite my, my favorite fan mail. It, it was from uh, someone who was ordained in the Church of Scotland and uh, had told me that he, had, when he wrote me, that he had studied five years of biblical Hebrew in seminary. Uh, he was now retired. He was a man in his, in his 70s. And he said each time a new translation of the Bible came out, he and his wife would rush off to acquire it, and then they would be bitterly disappointed. And his wife, who I think must be a very smart woman, uh, commented about those translations. She said, the problem with those translations is that they are bossy meaning that they tell you what you're supposed to think the original says rather than what it says. So then he said, uh, when my uh, translation came out, he said at last the, the, there was a, um, uh, an English version that, that sounded like the Hebrew and conveyed the power of the Hebrew. So, Here's what I think is, is ultimately about. For reasons that we cannot fathom, this rather uh, tiny provincial culture in the ancient Near East, sandwiched in between great empires who had uh, wonderful material cultures, which ancient Israel did not have, in terms of architecture, visual art, and so forth. Um, this little culture produced writers of genius, who really eclipsed the surrounding cultures entirely. And they were actuated by uh, a religious vision. There's no question about that. But they decided to convey their religious vision through literary means. And I think that if you get closer to the literary fashioning of the Hebrew Bible, you also bring into sharper focus with a more understanding of the complexities and the subtleties uh, uh, a sharper focus of the religious vision. So for, I think that that's why uh, many devout readers have latched on to, to my translation. It's Well, what you're describing, okay, this is gonna be a Christian statement, but it's incarnational. Yeah. In that, um, they worked they they communicated what they understood about reality about god in a, a in a literary art form right and and they they put it into that art form and the the the, the spoken word is very important all through that narrative absolutely I mean, god god speaks um the universe and dialogue is so important let me say this, I, I did not um, at all intend, and I, I think I never uh, committed the, the, this uh, 
transgression to um, uh, translate the Bible in a way that that would argue for a particular religious oh. vision. That, that is, uh, 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 it, it was not, a, 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 say, a Jewish polemic against the Christian reading of the Bible. In fact, I think the historical story is that both Jews and Christians reread uh, Hebrew scripture in, in ways that, that transformed what it originally wanted to say. Um, yeah. Uh, and well, I'll give you one example, which it really struck me as I was doing this one is translating Psalms. Um, the book of Psalms, of course, is an intensely spiritual, a collection of intensely spiritual poems. That's sort of self-evident. But the spirituality is somewhat different in certain respects from the spirituality of both Christians and Jews, and I would suppose Muslims as well. Uh, it's anchored in the human body. Yeah. It, it's, it's a physical kind of, of spirituality. I'll give you just one example. Uh, th there's one Psalm in which uh, the speaker in the psalm says, um, uh, I'm going to first uh, recite this line the way everybody else translates it, Cer certainly the, the King James Version. Uh, uh, My soul thirsts for you, O God, in a parched land without water. Now that's beautiful, right? Okay, here's the problem. I, I may be notorious for the fact that I never use the word soul in my translation uh, because it's, in, it's misleading. That, that is, uh, the, the Hebrew nefesh, which yeah. everybody translates as soul, uh, has a lot of different meanings, but it doesn't mean soul. It means life breath, life. Uh, and um, it... Um, Okay, so um, by extension, it means other things. So that is, it, it means um, neck or throat because the throat is the passageway for the life breath. Uh, so th there's a, a hilarious mistranslation in the King James Bible, which is, the waters have come up even unto my soul. What, what kind of thing is that? <laughs> But, but of course, it means neck. I'm drowning. <laughs> drowning is a recurring metaphor for near death in Psalms. Um, so I, I looked at the, the context of uh, my soul thirst for you, which is a parched land without water and thirst. Which is a pair of taxes, isn't it? Yeah. Parched land without water. Well, uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> I learned that I, from you. I said, "What? It, it doesn't mean soul. It means throat. My throat thirsts for you. Now, that's a little shocking. It's not as beautiful as soul, but it, it has a great power. That, that is, I long for you, God, so desperately. It's like a man wandering in a desert, uh, and he doesn't have a drop of water, and his, his throat 
thirst for water, that's the way I thirst for you. Do you see what I mean about spirituality anchored in the, the body? It's very graphic. What, what I've noticed in reading your translation is the vividness of it. You know, one of the things that I had noticed is that, I mean, even in the King James, um, the examples, you know, the, it's always very graphic, concrete. But in your translation, it's, it's sort of like, I have cataracts. I haven't had them removed yet because they tell me they're not ready. But people who have cataracts removed tell me that it's like they never saw before. Right, right. You know, it's like, oh, that's red. Yeah. You know, I, I thought it was you know, rose or something. Oh, that's blue. Anyway, and I didn't, you know, I, I hadn't seen that for years. It felt like that reading your translation. Um, oh, that's a that, great that all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this text, and that gets to some things you talk about in this book. And I felt like, you know, you talked about, you talk about people translating it. Um, uh, one of the problems, it's, it's like making it acceptable to the literary level of language of the period in which they're translating it somehow. So it's like boldler, you know, it's like boldlerizing um, Shakespeare, only they're boldlerizing the Bible at the various translations. At least that's how I took what you wrote. But you said that you thought your literary studies would help you understand the narrative of the Bible. But what you learned was that, well, that may have had some truth to it. The Bible taught you something about narrative. Yes, that's right. And it, would you elaborate on that, how the Bible taught you about narrative? Well, two, in two respects. One, because the Bible is uh, a biblical narrative is so spare in its means and so compact so that uh, uh, say the, the the story of Joseph and his brothers one of the, the great stories we have uh, takes up you know maybe uh, 20 chapters uh, of Genesis and Thomas Mann wrote uh, four bulky volumes uh, of Joseph and his brothers. So because uh, novels use thousands and thousands of words, um, the, the prominence of a particular technique or a particular word choice gets a little bit uh, submerged in the huge abundance of, of language. So in this pared down narrative, you can see uh, in a, a lucid way how, um, let's say, a switch from uh, the character's point of view to the narrator's point of view, uh, the, the, uh, the, the use uh, of um, uh, um, monologue, you know, interior monologue, which is very brief, but it's important in, in uh, biblical narrative. You see all those things in, in a crystalline way. So that was part of it. The other part of it is this, that, that um, well, I thought that, you know, I, I've been, I, I was writing things on Nabokov and on, I wrote a book on Fielding and, and uh, uh, one on Stendhal. I'll bring all this, uh, these skills that I've honed as a literary critic to the Bible. 
But then I discovered that the Bible had things in it which were original literary conventions and techniques that my work on the novel had uh, no knowledge of. Uh, for, for example, um, the use of repetition. Um, now, every, most readers of the Bible have this sense that, that although it's very economical, things get repeated. That is, the, the narrator will say something and then a character will, will say that same something in uh, almost the same words. Or it can be one character and then another character. So, and what happens is, is this. Um, things get repeated. But then as they repeat, they seem to be verbatim, there are little changes. That is, one term can be substituted for another, the order of events can be switched around, uh, uh, things can be added, things can be deleted. And all those swerves away from the verbatim repetition open up windows of perspective. And I think that's a totally original narrative. I'll give you just one very brief example. When um, uh, in, in the, the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, um, when she uh, falsely denounces Joseph uh, for an attempted rape, it's of course the other way around, uh, she says to the, the uh, household servants, um, uh, the Hebrew man whom he brought me, he referring without name to her husband resentfully, has uh, come to um, uh, um, mock us, or the same Hebrew word means to dally with us sexually. And he came into me. And I screamed and so on and so forth, the, the whole false narrative. Uh, when her husband comes home, she repeats the very same words with one small crucial exception. She doesn't say the Hebrew man. She says the Hebrew slave. Now what's going on? When she speaks to the household servants, she's speaking to slaves. So uh, she wants to enlist their uh, Egyptian solidarity. So she simply refers to, to uh, Joseph as the Hebrew man, you know, uh, maybe triggering the idea uh, that, that uh, all, all those Semites to the north of us uh, are, are dangerous rapists, uh, as a certain recent we all know. set of Mexicans. Uh, yeah. um, and when she says the same words to her husband, she wants to remind him that Joseph is a slave. You know, you're a slave, a piece of your property had the audacity to try to assault me. So, and that goes on all over the place. And when you see it, you, you see that there are um, uh, wonderful things happening in the narrative that you didn't realize. A couple things in the first chapter. Let's. I want to talk about this book a little bit. Okay. Because you wrote this after you finished the translation. Right. 
your reasons for you know what's wrong with modern translations and and one is that um uh they well you say they throw the baby out with the bath bath water um and they the they want to make everything very clear um and they and of course there's the the historical momentum you call it of the king james which has had an impact on the english language there's kind of no question um and and for the better i would say for the most part um and and i think we're losing it now um but um uh it, so that they're, you know, they're up against that. So they're trying to uh, counteract that somehow to put it in other words. And then you talk about um, the fact about the, the sociology of knowledge and the training in biblical studies and about how um, they keep trying to find different equivalents every time the same Hebrew word is used. Like, the Hebrew writer didn't know any better than to use the same word over and over. And your argument is that he's using the same word over and over for a reason. Right. And, 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 but no, we have to find 12 different ways to say it, but they don't communicate it as well as the one way did, which was the point in the first place. Um, I, I get, and then um, anyway, so maybe you could talk about, I'm, I'm recapitulating what you wrote and it'd be better to have you just explain um, why you think the modern translations are uh, miss the mark and why we needed another one. Okay. To, to begin with, um, I won't go into the whole background of this, but, but for a variety of cultural reasons, uh, these um, eminently learned scholars who have PhDs in, in biblical studies from Cambridge and Oxford and Yale and Harvard and Chicago Divinity School and so forth um, seem to have lost touch with the English language. So uh, I find re- repeatedly that, that uh, th- they choose words that great, that they, there's a promiscuous mingling of different levels of diction. There are, um, word choices that are screechingly modern, that that violate our sense that these were texts composed two and a half to almost three millennia ago. So that's one thing. Well, I'll I'll give you one tiny example uh, where there's just a tin ear to English. Um, in, In the Jewish Publication Society translation of Genesis, uh, we, when God creates the heavenly luminaries, the, 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 uh, uh, it's the sun to dominate the day and the moon to dominate the night. Now, uh, apart from the fact that dominate wrecks the rhythm of the line, which for me is very important, uh, that's way off target in terms of English usage. I mean, the Soviet Union dominated the small states of Eastern Europe after the Second World War. The sun and the moon don't dominate the, the day. And then I see what I mean. Okay, yeah. so, uh, yeah. so that's one thing. Um, then th- there is the whole issue of what I would call dumbing down the Bible. 
that, that is, the modern translators seem to assume that modern readers are clueless and, and that they have to make things painfully clear. So first of all, they, uh, they remove ambiguities where they're very important and purposeful in the, the original. Uh, and uh, one um, uh, egregious example is that they very often, maybe not invariably, but very often uh, do not represent metaphors as metaphors because they assume that readers these days can understand metaphors, which is linguistically nonsense. That is, as many uh, linguists have pointed out, including one who's uh, my Berkeley colleague, um, we can't speak without metaphors. And we use them all the time. We talk about throwing in the towel. Here's an example I mentioned in the book. When um, Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies, he says in my translation, which follows both the literal of the Hebrew and the word order, to see the nakedness of the land you have come. Now, I spotted at least two uh, widely disseminated translations where they represent this. And you've come to spy out the um, weak points in our defense. Now, maybe that, that's what he had in mind. But in fact, to see the nakedness, if you remember the, the um, prohibitions, uh, the taboo sexual relations, in uh, Leviticus means uh, to see the sexual part that should be hidden. You know, the, you shall not see your mother's nakedness. And that's very powerful. Oh, it's done. Yeah. In, in other words, what, what Joseph is saying, you've come down here in order to, to see what should never be seen by alien eyes. So I, let me just have one thought to this about dumbing down. Yeah. I tend to respect the intelligence of readers. I mean, a reader doesn't have to be a genius to um, uh, decipher a, a metaphor. Uh, and, um, and I think you have to respect the fact that, that ordinary readers are reasonably intelligent. What a concept. <laughs> I realize I'm taking your time. I, I yeah, could just I have, I have 20 million questions, but let's just end with, with this. Um, what do you hope for your translation? You've done rather a magisterial thing. Um, you've translated the whole Hebrew Bible and, and I'm loving reading it. So there's that. What is your hope for this? What is your, its impact both in, in a scholarly way, but also in a cultural way? Well, of course, like any author, <laughs> I, I hope that it will get to many readers. And uh, the indication so far, it's been, let's see, um, like two and a half years since it came out. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the sales are very strong. So I guess there are a lot of people out there reading it. So uh, I, I would hope that it would make 
the Bible um, accessible. Uh, maybe I don't even like that word. Let's say it, it would make evident what a, a compelling collection of te texts the Bible is, uh, how uh, various parts of us can speak to uh, our human condition and our to per personal lives in all kinds of ways. Uh, and how also for the, those who simply are, are um, literary readers, how you, you, you have magnificent poetry and some of the most uh, brilliant pieces of narrative uh, that anybody has produced. So that, that would be my first hope. I hope it'll be around for a while. I, I think that, that it's uh, pure hubris to, to imagine that anything you do is going to be around for a very long time. Uh, and let's say, uh, I think one interviewer asked me whether uh, I thought that, that somebody could do it better. So <laughs> here's, here's what, what I think, that, that uh, I hope for uh, at least quite a few decades to come, maybe even into the 22nd century, that, that this will be thought of as the gold standard, but maybe sometime way down the road, uh, a, a gifted translator will do it again and maybe solve some of the problems that, that I was unable to, to solve and will be more of a virtuoso of language than ever. And that's okay in the long run, but I hope not next year. <laughs> I, I think it'll be hard to beat. Um, I, what, what is it, well, what do you hope, I mean, in, in our fraught culture, what is, what is the point of translating the Bible? Under the well, the point of translating the Bible is precisely to uh, make available and engrossing to, to readers all the things that you and I have been uh, talking about the, this this morning. Uh, I would add this, uh, that when I was in college those many decades ago, uh, even though, uh, of course, uh, uh, one or two books of the Hebrew Bible and uh, uh, at least one of the gospels were included in great uh, books courses. By and large, I, I think that the Bible was uh, thought as something apart from literary tradition. Yeah. And uh, I, I would hope that, that um, my translation would make it more evident to readers that the Bible is a, a great collection or, or a collection of great works of literature that in, in talking about all the important things in human life is in conversation with, with, uh, with, with uh, Sophocles and Plato and, and Dante and um, uh, Tolstoy. And my Russian friend would add Dostoevsky. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> what to do? Well, 
Professor Alter, I don't want to keep you. This has been wonderful. And I thank you for giving us your time. And yeah, I thank you pleasure. more. I thank you, frankly, for your life so far. I hope you have other. Well, that's a good way to end. What are you working on now? Oh, well, uh, two things. One, I, I recently finished a, um, a short autobiographical work. It's, it's not a full-scale uh, autobiography, but uh, I concentrate for various reasons on, on my long career as a writer. It's called A Writing Life. And I recently passed it on to my agent. He's looking for a publisher now. So I, can hardly, I don't think it'll be hard to find one. Yeah. I can hardly the, wait. The, uh, the other thing is I am um, working on a biography of the uh, fascinating Israeli novelist Amos Oz, who died two years ago. Oh. And I'm making progress on that. Well, we have something to look forward to. That's what I have to say. So thank you again. Okay, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Pleasure talking with you too. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by Roberta Amundsen, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag. <laughs>